We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, as we mentioned. I'm going to have you guys rise. Just six short verses. It'll be Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it. We'll pray, and we will get started. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That was God's word. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful this morning to be able to open up this, this well-known, uh, sometimes misunderstood, uh, oftentimes misapplied passage, and you know, honestly, oftentimes ignored. Um, and so I just ask that as we, as a church body, seek to follow Jesus more closely, as we seek to be a, a family of followers of Christ, who put on the family resemblance of our God and Father, who's merciful and kind and loving and compassionate, that you help us through the opening up and the expounding of your word to become more like Christ. And so help us with our judgmentalism, help us with our cowardice, help us with our fears, and help us, I pray, to see you and to give up everything in order to follow you. You are worthy, O oh Lord. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So, uh, back in the year 2007, the Barna Research Group conducted a survey among non-Christians and asked them how they perceived, perceived rather, Christians and Christianity. And I just want to ask you guys, like we get some audience participation in here, what do you think were the top three ways that Christians were described by non-Christians? Judgmental, yeah, yeah, that was number, back in 2007, that was number one. All right, what do you, number two, what do you guys think? Hypocritical, correct, and number three, narrow-minded, yeah, old-fashioned or too political. Those are kind of like tied for number three. So, so this was, you know, like a ton of books were written about this. It probably honestly changed the psychology of the church to some extent. Um, but remember, again, this is, this is the year 2007, and lest you forget, this is before Instagram, before Twitter, before President Trump, it's even before President Obama. So fast forward a little bit, and in the year 2015, the same group asked a, a bunch of non-Christian millennials how they perceived Christians. And after they wiped the avocado toast crumbs from the sides of their mouth, <laughs> can, can you guess what they said? <laughs> Very close to the same thing. I'll, I'll actually read these backwards. Uh, third was hypocritical. Second was judgmental. First was anti-gay. That was the perception of millennials, non-Christian millennials of the church back in 2015. And I can only imagine it's, it's gotten worse since then. Now, obviously, um, at some level here, we, we can expect criticism from the culture, right? Like, we've been warned by Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount that there will be those who misunderstand us, who, he says, revile us, because of our commitment to him. But does anyone in here remember how Jesus told his disciples how they would be known in the world? 
And this isn't one by survey. This is the scriptures themselves. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus told his disciples, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so we come to another teaching of Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, this, this might be Jesus' most famous teaching in the whole sermon. Because if you ever start talking to someone about faith in Jesus, more often than not, you'll hear them say, hey, don't judge me, man. Doesn't your holy book say, don't judge? You know, people love this teaching from Jesus. Or, or at least, you know, they love what they think he's teaching in this passage. And so, I mean, this is actually, this is a pretty straightforward text, right? Like, who else here is relieved that I'm only preaching on six verses? <laughs> so my hope today then is, is essentially this, that by the end of today, we'll simply have a better understanding of how to judge rightly without being judgmental. How to judge rightly without being judgmental. And so we'll figure that out by looking at it through three different lenses here. Um, If you have a bulletin, it'll be in there, but I'll read them here. It says, first, we have the principle of judgment. Second, the practice of right judgment. And third, sticking with our alliteration here, the pearls and the pigs. So, yeah, I didn't know how to do that better. (laughs) So first off, um, the principle of judgment. Let's, uh, Let's actually start by looking at what judgment is not. Jesus starts here, in verse 1, saying, judge not that you be not judged. The verse that gets translated here as judge is not one of those weird Greek words that you could translate in a bunch of different ways. The word that Matthew is using here when he quotes Jesus is actually very similar to the word judge that we use in English, which is to say a justice of the court can judge a trial. Your mom can judge a pie-eating contest. And you can judge whether it's shorts weather or pants weather outside, right? Or you can judge whether the apple you're eating is delicious or mealy. Um, Those judgments are okay because, you know, for any of us with ears to hear this, might I suggest to you that Jesus is not at all condemning your mother's preference of blueberry pies, nor is he condemning our efforts to apply justice in in the law system. As a matter of fact, he commands us to do that. As we see, that's the purpose of government from Romans chapter 13. And unless you're a particular type of Southern Baptist, he's probably not condemning you for the fact that you wore shorts here today. That was judgmental. (laughs) All right. You can judge between right and wrong, between good and bad, helpful and unhelpful. And as we'll see in this illustration that Jesus is about to provide for us, he expects us to carefully address the sins and shortcomings that we see in one another. Now, Jesus is not commanding us here to be indiscriminate. He's not telling us to be undiscerning. In a few verses here, he's going to get to these dogs and pigs, right? Which would seem a little odd. Like, don't judge other people. And by the way, some of them are pigs and others are dogs. (laughs) Like, all right. How How do you handle that? And shortly after that, you know, by the end of this chapter, by the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to tell us to judge the road we walk. He's going to tell us to judge the type of teachers we listen to. And he's going to tell us to judge the foundations that we build our lives on. So that's not what Jesus is getting at. So what is he getting at here? And I think John Stott nailed it in his commentary on Matthew when he brought in the word censoriousness. 
Now, this is one worth writing down. I'll spell it for you. Censoriousness, C-E-N-S-O-R-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. What is censoriousness? A person afflicted with censoriousness is a fault-finding, critical, even perhaps hypercritical, self-righteous, self-exalting, wise in their own eyes, judgmental hypocrite. Stott goes on to describe a censorious person with surgical accuracy. He says this, First, they put the worst possible construction on other people's motives. Second, they pour cold water on your schemes and dreams. And third, they're ungenerous toward others when they make mistakes. Okay. So, are you censorious when you look at the parent with their undisciplined child running up and down the aisles at the grocery store? Or are you censorious toward the rich person for being so greedy? Or are you censorious towards the poor single mom for being so irresponsible? Or to bring it closer to home, wives, how often do you extend the benefit of the doubt to your husbands? And fathers, how often do you cut your kids down at the knees for making a simple, small mistake? And let me just be honest with all of you guys for a moment here. Over the last few months, I've had more confusion, frustration, and bewilderment when it comes to my own calling as a pastor because of the spirit of censoriousness. So on the one hand, I've seen how people have ascribed malicious motives to one another within this church, people who they used to call friends. I've seen an attitude of unforgiveness and self-righteous anger. I've seen, ultimately, how the deeply bitter heart of censoriousness has destroyed friendships, harmed valuable relationships, and even threatened marriages within our community. That's the one hand. And on the other hand, I've seen how I thought I knew exactly how to fix these people's lives. I've seen how I've looked at other people's problems as though they were so petty and dumb. And if they could just think about God the way that I think about God, then their problems would be solved. I've seen how I thought I know these people better than they know themselves. After all, I'm a pastor. The Bible talks about this because it's a problem that afflicts all of us. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus in his letter to the churches, I mean, he is, like that whole letter, he's obviously reflecting over and over again on the Sermon on the Mount. And in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says this, listen carefully. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The censorious person doesn't just judge other people, but by defining and judging people on the basis of their own standard, they ultimately put themselves in a position to judge God himself. They are no longer doers of God's royal law, the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as who? 
yourself. They are no longer doers of the law, but have become judges over it. So why shouldn't we judge? And Jesus answers that for us in the very next verse, verse 2. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, we'll be relatively quick here, but there's a principle of warning, both practical and eternal here. So, again, on the one hand, Jesus is telling us something that we already know. He's telling us that the people that are the most judgmental and the most hypocritical will be the most judged among us, right? Like, if you have a censorious boss or a censorious coworker, you already know this is true. Just remember how they're talked about as soon as they leave the room, okay? And what's interesting, though, is the way that we, in our human hearts, tend to balance the cosmic scales by judging the judgmental, by censuring the censorious, by weighing out and measuring with the measure that they applied to us. You know, I was meeting with a friend the other day, and we were talking about this passage, and I reminded him about how when he first met me and my group of Christian friends, he was so bothered by the fact that he felt so continually judged by everybody. You know, the amazing thing was that after I brought this up, he just turned to me and said, yeah, but, you know, I, I realize now that I was just being judgmental about how judgmental all you Christians were. The way you judge, you'll be judged. And if you hold a high measure up for other people, they will expect you to measure up as well. There's a reason kids roll their eyes when their parents tell them, do as I say, not as I do. So that's practical, right? Like, for a functional relationship to occur, you need to apply a nice, consistent standard. And then there's the eternal warning. And I think the Apostle Paul said it well when he was, well, of course, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he's going to say it well. Um, (laughs) But he said it well when he was confronting his opponents who were judging his motives in ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, you guys can turn there while I take a sip here. Paul wrote this to his critics. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And then this is the point here. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of of the heart. A censorious person judges the hearts and motivations of others. A censorious person reads the first chapter of the book, closes it, and says, I think I can tell where this is going. The follower of Jesus, on the other hand, knows that ultimately it's only God who knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so ultimately, he's the only one who can judge. You know, it's, it's actually kind of funny to me the popularity of this teaching about Jesus to not judge others, because immediately after it has to be the least popular teaching of Jesus, which is the teaching on the judgment of God. The only thing I really want to point out to you from this passage is actually how equitable and fair God is toward people. It was, uh, I believe it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who came up with this brilliant illustration. He used to say that each one of us has an invisible tape recorder hanging around our necks. But the brilliance of it is that it only records every time you criticize someone else's behavior or every time you assume someone else's motives or when you say, you know, you really should dot, 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 you know. And 
We'll just say that it's given to you in middle school because that seems reasonable. <laughs> so Martin Lloyd-Jones imagined that, you know, from middle school up until the end of time, this thing is recording you, and then all of a sudden you're standing before God. And there are some people who might say something, you know, something like, well, hey, you know, you didn't give me enough information to believe in you, and I didn't, I didn't even know what the Ten Commandments were, so, you know, go easy on me here. To which God would simply reply, okay, like, I'm, I'm not going to judge you on the basis of what I said. I'm not even going to judge you on the basis of my standard. But how about I just judge you on the basis of yours? And then all of a sudden, this recorder appears around your neck. God takes it up, takes it off, turns up the volume. Click. Oh, gosh. How many of you feel good about that prospect? What that thought should do to you is it should create a sense of genuine self-reflection. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do next. And so we come to some practical advice when it comes to the practice of right judgment. So verses 3 through 5, let's read them again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, and, when, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, um, man, uh, many in our culture today assume that if you're critical of anything, if you disagree with any aspect of another person's life, it's hateful, right? <laughs> like, like, we've talked about this before uh, in this setting, but honestly, I think, I think the, the great modern American cultural good is individual self-expression. And if you criticize in any way another person expresses themselves, you've violated some great law, you've committed blasphemy against the spirit of the age, and thus, you need to keep your mouth shut. Right? And so, for many of us, like, we're more than okay with that, right? Like, this is sort of the opposite of the externally censorious person. Like, an, exter- an externally censorious person might say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a truth teller. I just tell it like it is. I'm just upfront and bold, which is really just a nice way of them telling us that they're just a jerk. <laughs> but what about on the other hand? And, and I think in the vast majority of circumstances, this is where I land. Like, these are people who are inwardly censorious, but outwardly they don't really say much in, until they're right here. Um, but if there's a ditch on one side of the road called hypercritical censoriousness, what do we call the ditch on the other side of the road? You know, and if, again, if people like me are being kind to ourselves, we call ourselves peacemakers or team players, or if we're feeling particularly spiritual, we'll say that we're being merciful. But for many of us, it's a really kind way to describe our cowardice. So one ditch is hypercritical censoriousness. The other ditch is cowardice. And Jesus is our driving instructor, and he's trying to keep us on the road. Because what do these ditches have in common here? The censorious person thinks so highly of themselves that they feel free to sit in critical judgment over other people. And the cowardly person thinks so highly of themselves 
because they don't want to say something that might rock the boat or cause other people to think poorly of them, even if it's something that needs to be said. At, at the core of both, it's just a hyperinflated view of yourself. And so let's approach these, you know, I don't know, wood materials on the basis of size. Uh, first off, the spec. The spec and the log here both refer to actual sins in our lives, right? And so Jesus is very intentionally using our eyes as a metaphor here. Um, because when you, get, when you get sawdust in your eye or like a splinter, which sounds horrible, or a speck or something like that in your eye, is it something that you can just ignore? No. Like, like it's something that interferes with your sight, right? And for most of us, we get so distracted when we have this speck in our eyes that it makes it incredibly difficult for us to see anything else around us clearly, right? And so that's, that's true of sins in our lives. If there's a particular sin that you're holding on to in your life, whether it's the sin of, of anger or lust or self-righteousness, it makes it incredibly difficult for you to see the aspects of your life and the aspects of other people's lives as clearly as you'd like. Hebrews 3.13 talks about it like this. It says, um, it talks about how we can be hardened, or, or kind of to stick with our analogy here, how we can be blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. All right, so, so how do we take care of the dust that we get in our eyes? You know, I, as some of you know I work in a laboratory setting, and so at our work we have these eyewash stations. And so they're there in case you accidentally get like acid in your eye or God, forget, God forbid the black plague or something like that. <laughs> Now, I'd imagine that most of us have gotten something in our eyes and we were just able to, you know, go to a sink or a faucet and just splash it out or something like that. Just run the faucet over it until it goes out. Or, you know, we got up close in a mirror and we're able to just sort of pick it out. Um, Back in Jesus' day, did they have eyewash stations? No. No, they didn't. (laughs) Or did they have faucets or running water? I I don't think they did. (laughs) I mean, people, for the most part, probably didn't even have mirrors. So if you, got, if you got a sliver or a speck or something in your eye, you had to have a friend come and help you take it out, right? So how, did they do, how do you do that? How do you take something out of someone else's eye? Carefully, delicately, right? It's an eyeball. So, so if someone comes to you, and is helping you get the speck out of your eye, but they come to you walking forward with a hammer and a saw. It's like, it's like, no, I don't need that help. Thanks. I mean, even, even tweezers, it's like, oh, get away from me. Get away. But like, you know, a, a Kleenex, a moist cloth, like something like that. It's like, okay, yeah, come on over here. So how do we pe- help people get the speck out of their eyes? Like we said, very delicately, very cautiously, very tenderly. And how do we do that, though? We do it by looking at ourselves first, right? And so this is where the log comes into play. Um, A lot of commentators and preachers who comment on this passage are quick to point out that Jesus is being humorous here. The problem is, is that as soon as you tell people that Jesus is making a joke, it stops being funny. So I've brought a prop. Okay. (laughs) Let me ask you guys, what do you observe here? How well can I see right now? How am I doing? How threatened do you all feel? <laughs> you know? So suppose, this is really heavy. Um, suppose for a moment that 
this room is an illustration of our Christian lives together. What presents more of a threat to you guys? This or, or the speck in Paul's eye? What should I assume is the bigger threat, right? Um, how many people can I affect with my log? Quite a few. <laughs> Quite a few. Uh, from my perspective, what should I be more concerned about? This massive beam jutting out of my eye that honestly could hurt other people. And I, I frankly, I was going to try and make a, like a, an apparatus to stick it to my head. <laughs> I like picked it up and moved with it. I was like, if I move my head too fast, I will snap my neck. <laughs> so, so what are the takeaways here? First, Jesus actually expects his followers to be involved in community life together. Right? And when you put together all the logs and all the specks of the people in this room, we'll have a whole forest of problems that we can work through together. So secondly, Jesus expects that we will, be, that we will actually be working through these things together. I mean, look at verse 5 again. Not only does Jesus tell us to take care of the log in our own eyes, but he says once we do that, we'll actually be in a mental and a spiritual state that will allow us to help our brother remove the bothersome speck from their own eyes. Okay, and then the third thing is this. Like, you know, we, we mentioned James 4 and the idea of how when we judge others, we put ourselves in the seat of God and we even end up judging God. But I think the way a lot of us sort of view it is not so much that we're judging God, but we, we feel like we're on one side of the line with Jesus next to us, and we're looking at this person over here, and we're like, Jesus, can you believe this person? And in our minds, we're thinking Jesus is saying, I know. <laughs> like, I, think, I think that's how we view it. So, so here's, here's the last thing I want you to take away from this, from, from the log, is that maybe, just maybe, when this is in front of your eyes, you're not seeing things clearly. Maybe you're not seeing things as clearly as Jesus does. Maybe instead of being censorious, instead of assuming that you understand the situation perfectly, instead of assuming that you don't know the, or sorry, rather, that you do know the other person's hearts and motivations as you observe that speck in their life, maybe just first assume you don't see clearly and start there. I think that's, a, that's at least a starting point for our process of gentleness. So how do we become the sort of people who take care of the logs in our own eyes instead of being hypercritical of the specks we see in others? Um, how do we work on seeing more clearly, essentially? Practically, uh, how in the world do we avoid being the type of hypocritical, censorious people that Jesus is talking about here? And I would say it happens when we see him. And it may surprise you, but this is where the pigs and the pearls come in. So, uh, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So give me maybe five minutes here to explain this miniature parable, and then we'll see how the pearls and the pigs guard us from censoriousness. And to, to illustrate this, I've actually brought in a dog and a pig. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, this verse, has, it, it, see, it is funny. It is a funny sermon from Jesus' end, is what I'm saying. Um, 
This verse has confused interpreters basically since it was written. Uh, The commentators are split, uh, I would say like 50-50, give or take, on whether or not verse 6 even relates to verses 1 through 5. Talking about specks and logs and hogs and dogs. And beyond that, they'll have a slightly different interpretation of what it could mean. So some commentators believe that Jesus here is talking to the apostles about not taking the gospel to non-Jewish nations. But that just doesn't really fit in with the rest of the gospel. And Matthew, just think about the way it ends when Jesus resurrects from the dead and tells his disciples, go to all the nations and give them the gospel. So, so I doubt that that's what's going on. Um, documents from the late 100s AD, there's this document called the Didache. It kind of described the practices of the early church. Uh, they used this verse to talk about how you don't give communion to the unbaptized. Okay, so that's how they understood it then. And then some today believe that there are just some people that are so piggish, so doggish, that you shouldn't even share the gospel with them. But let's just look closely at this and ask a few questions. I don't know if I'll actually answer what Jesus is getting at here, but we can at least glean something from some observations. First off, before we start answering who the pigs and the dogs are, who is Jesus reprimanding here? Who's he reprimanding? Who's he telling not to throw stuff at the animals? His kids, us, right? (laughs) Like he's not criticizing the dogs or the pigs. After all, they're just acting like the animals that they are. Jesus is actually warning the person who is interacting with these animals. And, that, and, and what is this person doing here? What are they doing? The person in this parable is putting something in front of these animals that they are incapable of valuing. In terms of dogs, and this might be the most controversial thing I could say in a, in a Fort Collins church, um, but these dogs are not necessarily good boys, Okay. <laughs> Uh, Jesus likely has feral dogs who roamed through, you know, the ancient cities in mind. Uh, and for first century Jews, there's, there's not a lot of positive association with these dogs. And I don't think it's all that surprising for me to tell you there's not a lot of positive association with pigs either. And so uh, what do these feral dogs and, and very likely feral hogs have in common? They both value food. And that's about it. For the dogs, they're incapable of distinguishing between the choice, holy cuts of meat that were used in the sacrificial system. They can't distinguish between that and a carcass that was left on the side of a street. Food is food. They have no way of comprehending what is holy. And for the pigs, they eat pods and peas and all that, which are you know, nice and small and round, so you might forgive them for mistaking the pearl for you know, a, a pea or something like that. But when they spit them back out, who's the idiot in this story? The person who tried to feed them the pearls, right? So is Jesus chastising the dogs and the hogs for their inability to recognize the worth of what they've been given? Again, the animals are just acting in accordance with their nature. Who is able to recognize the value of a pearl? You know, there's only one other place in Matthew's gospel where a pearl is mentioned, and it's in another really short parable, a little two-verse parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Jesus says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The piggish person looks at God and says, What do I get out of following you? How do I, what do I get out of obeying you? How do you satisfy my needs? How can God give me the type of life that I want? The type of man or woman 
who perceives the value of the kingdom of heaven, asks God, take whatever you want from me, if only I can have you. And so what keeps someone from recognizing the worth of the kingdom of God? Like what, what in, a, in a way, like what makes a pig a pig? At this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we're getting close to Jesus's climactic ending. And throughout this sermon, we've seen him continually criticize one group of people over and over again. Who are they? Pharisees, yes, they're whispers, the Pharisees. The self-righteous, censorious, judgmental, hypocritical Pharisees. And so let me suggest to you that when Jesus is talking about these creatures who can't recognize the value of a pearl, these are people who can't recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven because they place so much value on their own sense of self-righteousness. And so this is where we can start to answer the question I asked five minutes ago, namely, how in the world can we avoid being the type of hypocritical, censorious people that Jesus is warning about here? You can avoid censoriousness when you see the value of the pearl. You avoid self-righteous judgmentalism when you see the value of the kingdom of God, which is to say you see the value of God's king, the Lord Jesus himself. But let me warn you, it is very difficult to see this value in the pearl because it will cost you everything. And in particular, it will cost you your ability to make a claim to your own righteousness. Now, righteousness is a very religious-sounding word. It might make sense among us Christians, but let's put it in modern-day parlance. What is righteousness? Righteousness is that thing that you build your identity on. It's the thing that you feel like gives your life meaning and worth and value. And the Bible teaches us that the problem with humanity is not merely the fact that we sin against God's holy, righteous standard, but that we go a step beyond that and define righteousness in our own terms. And like James 4 says, when we do that, we put ourselves in a position to judge God. So don't believe me? Don't believe me that that's the problem? Let me ask you this. What took Jesus' life? Was it the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes who crucified Jesus? No, it was the self-righteous religious establishment. Jesus was crucified on two Roman beams as much as he was crucified on the beams that protrude from our own self-righteous eyes. Jesus was the pearl of great price, and when he came to us from heaven, we trampled him underneath our feet. And in great cosmic irony, this is exactly what made Jesus so valuable. When he was trampled down to the dust, God exalted him to the highest seat in heaven. Sit at my right hand, says Psalm 110, until I put your enemies underneath your feet. The most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the Bible. Okay? Sit at the right hand of God because you laid your life down for them. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And this is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus has been talking about since the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, where he tells us in so many words that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, and that to give is to receive, that the servant of all becomes the master of the universe. Paul, a Pharisee if there ever was one, a censorious man, 
after coming to faith in Jesus, writes this in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what is it, then, about seeing the value of Jesus that reminds us of our own self-righteous, or rather, that removes our own self-righteous hypocrisy? We recognize that the only way that you can come to Jesus, the only way to continue to follow Jesus, is to admit that you have no righteousness apart from him. A self-righteous person cannot even begin to fathom what that means. We come to Jesus because we recognize him as the pearl of infinite value, Jesus came to us, even though we trampled him underfoot like pigs, and he treated us like we were pearls of infinite value. He gave up everything for us. And when you see the way that Jesus treated us, even though he had every right to condemn us, every right to judge us, every right to cast us away, every right to put us underneath his feet, he still loves us and accepts us and dies for us. And now, through his resurrected life in the presence of his Holy Spirit, he teaches us to extend that same mercy to one another. And so one last note here before I finish. Um, There's an older man I've been ministering to now for a few months. Tina actually connected me with him uh, when he needed some help after some pretty major health complications. Now, he's not a Christian, nor is he interested in becoming one. But just earlier this week, I was giving him a ride home from the hospital, and we started talking about spiritual matters. He insisted to me that Christianity is nothing unique, that you can find the teachings of Jesus in almost any other major religious system, even the teaching from today, to judge not, you know. And while I grant that there might be some superficial similarities between the major world religions, I would argue that there are at least, there are more than two, but there's at least two things that make Christianity completely unique. First, every world religion will tell you to repent of your sins, every single one of them. They might not say it in those words, but they all say it in some way or another. But as far as I know, Christianity is the only one, Jesus is the only one, who tells us to repent of our righteousness. For many of us, our own sense of righteousness, however we define it, is exactly the thing that we use to avoid Jesus. Which brings me to the second thing that makes Christianity unique, and that's Jesus Christ himself. You can have the teachings of Buddha without necessarily having a man named Buddha, and you can have the teachings of the prophet Muhammad without necessarily having that individual, you know, getting some sort of revelation from God. But if you take Christ out of Christianity, if you remove the righteous life of the eternal Son of God, if you remove his sacrificial death, if you remove his bodily resurrection, your Christianity is left with nothing. As someone put it, if you take Christ out of Christian, all you're left with are the letters I-A-N. And I'm sorry, but Ian can't help you. (laughs) So am I in violation here of Jesus' warnings as I minister to this older man who has no expressed interest in Christianity? Am I wasting pearls on him? Well, for one thing, he's not attacking me, so I got that going for me. But I would just point you to one more story, and with this we'll close. The story of the prodigal son. 
younger son took his inheritance from his dad, blew it on prostitutes, booze, and partying, and he ends up down with the pigs, eating their pods. The older brother, he stayed externally faithful to his dad, tended the land, managed the house. But when his little brother returned to the loving embrace of his father, it was a bridge too far. That famous story ends with the father going out to meet the older son outside of the party that he's throwing for the the prodigal that just returned. The father is pleading with this older, faithful son to come inside and rejoice that his brother is alive. And we never learn how the older son responded. At one point in the story, the younger son looked like a pig, right? Like especially when he's down on all fours eating with them. By the end of the story, we're left wondering if the older son will answer to the father's love. We're left wondering if he will recognize the true, that true value and true worth are not found in his moral performance, are not found in the stuff that he feels like his father owns him, but are found in the father himself. Wisdom will show us where to take our pearls. Our calling is to just be faithful to our loving king. He's reminded us to have a humble perception of our own standing before him. He's taught us to be far more scrutinizing of our own faults and logs than the specks we see in others. And he's called us to intentionally, carefully, cautiously, and gently help one another with those specks. And he has reminded us that true worth is found in him. And as he brings his kingdom to consummation here on earth as it is in heaven, he's called us to be gracious and wise servants who invite as many into the kingdom as we can. And maybe... Just maybe, if we take him seriously today, the world won't know us for our censorious judgmentalism, but for our love. Let's ask him for help. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are so merciful and kind to us, that you don't deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquity, but you love us As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to us. And so I ask that as this word comes and settles on our hearts, I pray, empowered by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us to be a transformative community of love and grace and peace, and that the judgmentalism that infects so many of our hearts would lay dead at the feet of the cross. Help us to judge with right judgment to think true thoughts, to care for one another, and to lay our lives down for one another as Jesus laid his life down for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.